in college it was my major was French. Oh, so are you teaching French classes? Oh, no, I just decided to, you know, do something with my degree and continue learning so I don't waste years of studying. I love it. Like everybody else, the Duolingo bird haunts my dreams. So with that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey through learning and development? Yeah, so I actually got into learning and development accidentally when I was an HR intern at San Diego Airport. Now, I think that was like 10 years ago. Um, Actually, originally wanted to get into recruiting or more of the traditional HR type roles. But I was also incredibly passionate about airplanes to the point where I developed a class for the fellow interns to educate them on the various aircraft and aircraft type that would frequent the airport because no one else had like an aviation background except like one other person did a live session and also made an e-learning module added it to my resume and the rest was kind of history because that really stood out as I was applying for jobs after college and uh, kept getting a lot of hits for L&D sounded interesting it sounded really creative which was kind of at the time, what was appealing to me, and then really learned what it was as I was in it. So kind of building the plane while it was flying, if you will. So I started off in hospitality, worked at Four Seasons for six years, uh, then to airlines at JetBlue for a year, and then now to Ola, which is a tech company in the restaurant space. So throughout those three employers, kind of dabbled in similar type programming, and then eventually got into some newer type uh, types of responsibilities as well, but things from onboarding, leadership development, coaching, instructional design, e-learning design, facilitation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're a director at Olo currently, right? Like you're the first hire, I think the first L&D hire at, at Olo, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. I was the first official L&D hire and I am now the director. Um, I wasn't hired as the director, I was hired as the associate director. So here we are. Fantastic. And can you tell us uh, about some of your responsibilities in that role? You mentioned onboarding, et cetera, but, uh, you know, is there anything else that you want to add yeah. to that, that list? Yeah, definitely. So um, onboarding was kind of the first thing uh, that I tackled, followed by kind of an introduction to leadership development. Mm-hmm. We did have, at the time when I started, some managerial training classes that were led um, by other team members within people and culture or HR. And then I also launched our first LMS. So we have a remote first type work environment where even though we do have an HQ office in New York, and although it was a pandemic, we were traditionally a uh, remote work company. So having an LMS was critical to be able to facilitate self-paced on-demand scalable learning. So that was also one of the first things I did in my time at Olo was launch our first LMS. Kind of transition onto this year, a little over a year and a half into it, really digging in deeper into more uh, intense leadership development programming, specifically targeting kind of that uh, more tenured track or or kind of once you've been onboarded or familiarized with with a company, what's next, as well as continuing to ensure other what I call learning journeys are receiving proper support or proper programming for a variety of different needs. That's great. So. 
now that you're kind of the director, which is, I presume, as high as you can go at Olo, maybe chief learning officer, I don't really know. But, you know, what are your career aspirations? Like, what's next? Yeah, um, learning and development is a very kind of niche type uh, career path. I mean, you can probably transition over into more of the people side and become a chief people officer. That's not necessarily something that I would want right now. I really do like the L&D world. So I think for me, what I would love to get into more is potentially uh, more programming with bigger impact, potentially even a a global company or a global type uh, role that has a little bit more nuances or a little bit more layers of complexity that can be equally a challenge and also a thrill. Learning and development has, like you said, so many avenues you can go down. And one of the the things that I've seen uh, quite frequently and, and quite recently is uh, learning development, either separate from talent development or mixed together. Where do you think that line is, if you even believe there is a line between the two? Yeah, I, I feel like I should really know this um, since I'm a certified professional in talent development from ATD. However, I will give you my my personal opinion, as this is something that we're actively working on from a strategic standpoint at Olo. I view talent development as kind of a bigger umbrella of developing people skills, achieving employee engagement, career development, kind of looking long-term at the longevity of our talent, whereas Within that umbrella are different vehicles or or avenues to carry us in that direction, one of them being learning and development, one being how we maybe source talent or hire talent, one being how do we uh, manage performance or, you know, fill in the blanks of all the different kind of subcomponents of HR that all lead toward talent development. One of the reasons that we really wanted to bring you on this show is because you have an interesting career in terms of your career path the, you know, kind of some of the challenges that you've overcome. I love the fact that you're pioneering L&D at Olo. It's a such a cool story to kind of come in and say, you know, I'm going to take this and I'm going to own it and grow it. And, you know, you obviously have a, a, a perspective in terms of what L&D is, what talent development is, right? Like, how do we kind of draw some of these lines? But what do you think people tend to kind of get right and wrong uh, about learning and development? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, it's quite rare to find someone who has an exact match definition of L&D as me or as, as someone else. Um, but I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One, L&D compared to other departments or functions is relatively new and has evolved over the last you know several decades. So once it was called training and development, which looked a bit different than what really L&D is today or should be. Um, additionally, um, each company may morph L&D into a different focus or a different kind of scope, if you will. Sometimes L&D is a part of the, the HR team. Sometimes L&D is a part of the customer team, sales team. Sometimes it's his own team. And so there could be different areas of focus or, or different kind of views of what L&D is. So I think overall, people get L&D right from the standpoint of it's well-intentioned. It's not punitive. There's no sort of negative aspect of L&D. I think people, at least in my experience, generally see L&D as being there to help. 
However, I also think that can be one of the things that people struggle with the most is understanding that L&D is, is there to help open up more doors or opportunities to learn, grow, uh, understand how to overcome some challenges that they're currently facing or how to acquire a new relevant skill that will help them be an, a more effective employee or leader. It's unfortunate when I kind of see people who may respond to L&D as almost like an additional task on their list or an imposition or, oh, I'll do that in my free time, which I don't think having that approach or mentality will produce the level of impact that it's set out to achieve. So in your opinion, what does someone have to do? What concepts, what ideas uh, does somebody starting an L&D department have to do to really think about when setting strategy around learning and development, what it is within the organization, what they do? Yeah, I mean, if, if you're the first person joining a company in, an L, in a formal L&D role, I would recommend taking as much time necessary to really understand the current state of things. So how do people view learning and development? How do they see it being a need? What are some priorities? What maybe currently exists in a very informal way? And start to kind of piece together what the general consensus is around training at the company, and then also compare that to your expertise of this is what L&D should be, or this is what will make us even more effective, and see how much of a gap or how much of a, a jump or, or a change that would require. Um, of course, I didn't, you know, I wasn't hired at Olo, and immediately day one, I had this mentality of like, okay, step one, step two, step three. I, I mean, after going through it, I think it becomes more clear of like, okay, if I were to do it again, I, I would approach it this way. Um, but one of the things that um, I did that I am quite grateful and thankful that I did was spend a lot of time connecting with leaders, senior leaders, managers, and really pick their brain and understand kind of the multitude perspectives of L&D priorities and needs from their perspective. It's not that I am going to accept it at face value, but by kind of just getting a glimpse of what people's reactions were to that question it was interesting to see that there was a lot of commonalities uh, in terms of what people were looking for or needing uh, from an L&D function. And that's ultimately what led us to our very first initiative of onboarding. That's such a great answer because it is such a delicate balance, uh, especially when you're their first hire in L&D. People are like, oh, well, you're in, start doing stuff. And it's like, all right, well, what do I do? What's the first thing to tackle? And then how does this kind of balloon into the future of learning and development for the organization? And speaking of future of learning and development for Olo, uh, you had mentioned that it is a remote first organization. With that in mind, and the kind of the current environment of work, what role do you think learning and development plays to shape the business for the future? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, within the last few years during the pandemic, we've really experienced a change in in work environments. And L&D has or should be at the center of that change. And I really see two angles to look at here. One being, of course, the remote work environment. Now, fortunately, as I mentioned, Olo before was used to 
remote work. However, before the pandemic, we didn't have any formal remote-friendly leadership development programming. So being cognizant of how to adapt needed programs for a virtual environment, but also helping those who aren't familiar or comfortable with uh, remote working, helping them understand the skills and the approach needed to manage teams remotely or to feel more connected and engaged as it was a drastic change and it was a drastic transition. And if you weren't used to that, if you were used to coming into the office every day, that that may have been a big um, personal change to overcome that L&D can be a resource in, um, in kind of developing that skill set. Additionally, we're also a change champion or change agent for any type of workplace change, really, whether it's um, because of a pandemic or any type of uh, organizational change, um, whether it be uh, a restructuring or whether it be an acquisition, a merger, what have you, um, L&D can be a, an internal consultant of change management and how we ensure that people are fully on board and understanding of kind of the new direction or, or what's expected moving forward. That's cool. I, I imagine that as you started to accumulate wins, right? Like you're building the onboarding program, you're transitioning all this content to be remote first and making real impact at the organization that your brand probably started to kind of take off. Maybe people who didn't realize you were there before now suddenly are kind of coming to you and asking for things. How are you handling taking on the projects that you identified as a priority in the beginning and then handling all these new requests that are probably coming in, using that and, and kind of building your brand within the organization? Like, how are you kind of handling all of that uh, as yeah. it's happening? That's a great question. I would say, first of all, uh, there's anything that I learned early on in my career, it's be very realistic on how much you can actually have on your plate. Mm -hmm. You know, there was once a time where I thought like, oh, only working on two projects, that's nothing. I want to have like six projects on my plate. And I don't think we see the legwork and the effort required that may be more invisible, not just the build out of a program, but how to sustain it. So at Olo, it was much easier to dedicate time and uh, energy building out some of these programs early on when there were no other L&D uh, priorities or programs in action taking up your time. The challenge became when your plate was full and how you prioritize or how you communicate uh, uh, newer priorities or reprioritization. It's why that I would say in hindsight, if I were to have unlimited resources and if I were to also have a time machine, I would add new resources or add new team members earlier on, uh, not necessarily at the beginning, but I think there would be a point after, you know, getting a sense of what the company really needs from an L&D standpoint. And after getting a sense for this is how receptive L&D would be from other leaders, being able to at that point, find an additional team member or two to then help not only collaborate and build out whatever your first program or, or project will be, but then that person would, in theory, co-own or take on the ownership of that program so that you can then step away and begin working on the next build. And at that point, 
maybe a good time to also then hire another person who would be taking on whatever you're going to build from there. This is a perfect world. And anyone listening to this from an L&D department is like, oh my gosh, I wish it was that easy. Me too. Um, but a lot of companies are very limited in, especially within the L&D team who's, who's there. But I, I would almost wish if I could restart to have new talent introduced at the start of not even launching a project, but before even beginning the the design work or the analysis. Um, that way you have someone that's equally invested in it as you, and they are fully aware of the expectations here. What happened with Olo is we had people come in after launch to then take over ownership of some of the programs, which is amazing, first of all. And these people have been truly a godsend because they're very supportive and, and passionate about L&D as well. However, there is, I think, some nuanced inf- like data information that you discover through the build out that you either forget to mention when you're ramping someone up or isn't as clear. And, and it becomes a little it becomes a challenge of communication and it becomes a challenge of setting expectations to the same level that you had envisioned it in your mind. So um, although that's where we're at now, I would say in a perfect world, you would have that like co-founder with you, if you will, of whatever program you're building out to then either take on leading that or co-leading with you or however that may be structured. Onboarding, as I mentioned, was one of our first priorities that took, uh, specifically our orientation program, took six months to design and build out and test. And it's been in full swing for almost a year and a half. So, and, and fortunately, slash unfortunately, L&D has become the face of onboarding at Olo, which is great because of how people have received or perceived the launch of our onboarding program, but also it becomes slightly challenging to then say, okay, we do a lot more than onboarding. L&D has this cool little menu of, you know, things that we do and we have a lot in our wheelhouse. Let me show you this. And and sometimes it's hard for, I think, people to then readjust their perspective of L&D after having been so immersed in just the onboarding aspect and seeing how visible L&D was within onboarding. But again, I think that's where we come into play with change management. How do we then uh, adjust how people view us and our brand, as you mentioned, long term? Same kind of with us. So many people come to us now. We revamped our onboarding about the same four or five months it took. And they're like, well, we want our department onboarding. It's like, we're happy to do that, but it's kind of done already it may not just be like exactly how you want it but you know we developed it in a way that is pretty universal to the org and so now we have a tremendous amount of onboarding requests how do you handle or how have you done it in the past or how have you seen people in the past handle um let's say requests that are not a priority you know, how do you work with the organization or how do you work with people that specifically asks, ask L&D for things that may not fall under 
the L&D purview or fall under the brand of what you're looking to build L&D about? How do you handle those kind of conversations? My approach to requests that may seem a bit out in left field has generally defaulted to what I call my personal brand. And similar to how we talked about L&D's brand, I have a personal brand, which means that whatever I do, whatever I say, whatever, however I interact with people, how do I want my fellow coworkers to feel when they reach out to me or when they connect with me? And there are people in the world who are very much inclined to declining requests, refusing to help, kind of just saying, thank you, next. Uh, that's not in our wheelhouse. And I am deeply hesitant to do anything of that sort, even if it is something far out in left field. So what I tend to do is to maintain a positive relationship and to not feel like that was a waste reaching out to Kyle for you know L&D support. I tend to always have, first of all, an intake conversation with whatever request comes in. So an intake conversation is uh, really a deep dive into what specifically are you, are you the requester, usually a leader, trying to achieve from this proposed learning solution or, or need here. Um, and it usually uncovers things that may not be solved by learning, or it may be something that should be more in their control. And that's generally what I have come across as like things that I'm like, okay, I, I think the training would be helpful. It looks like you want to look for an external trainer. I am not the best person to, for example, source sales training. However, I want to be seen as helpful. I want to be seen as um, someone that you can still come back to and maintain that positive relationship. So it could be then like, okay, well, you know what? We don't have anything internally. We don't have anything um, in our list of external uh, training recommendations. However, let me reach out to someone that I know who might and and get back to you. So, you know, thank you six years of uh, luxury hospitality, because I think that definitely comes into play with how I personally interact with colleagues of my own. But that's how I generally manage um, L&D requests that are a bit out of our wheelhouse. That's a really cool perspective in terms of using your hospitality background to maintain that relationship. Because it sounds like you value their perspective, right? They're your colleague. They're coming to you and asking you for help. And so you as a leader uh, of your organization and having to be protective of your resources, you have to be able to have those conversations, but in a way that doesn't leave the requester feeling like you just blew them off or you were mean. Yeah. <laughs> because I have, I can tell you, you can develop a reputation. And I love that you're looking at your, you're, you're thinking about your personal brand there because you can develop very quickly a reputation for being dismissive or combative. Um, or, you know, and then people will just find a way to get things done without you. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so by having that conversation and, and trying to maintain that relationship, I think, you're really helping people to solve the problem, but then also leaving the door open so that you're not, uh, you're not putting yourself into a position where now you have people going and doing things on their own or spending money or, you know, mm -hmm. right. you're not in the room well, that's, <laughs> saying that's things the that risk. you don't want to say. What? That's the risk is just people going out and 
finding ways that to get it done best. and then it doesn't fit the L&D brand it doesn't yeah. fit the guidelines it like mm-hmm. you have no idea it's happening which is always the worst you know like I worked at an org and for a little while we were so inundated with work we would tell people no and we got a reputation for what they would say like team no like L&D was just team no we didn't want to be team no we just we didn't have the resources to help but by continually saying no and not finding other ways to work with them they would just do stuff and that exactly. would just cause more problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's really easy to say that's not my job. And um, what that ends up doing is it, it just makes people feel helpless. Like if, if they come out to you, if they come to you to request your assistance and you flat out just say, no, that's not my wheelhouse or no, that that's not something that we have the bandwidth to do right now then they just feel helpless. They feel stuck. And I, no one likes feeling helpless. No one likes feeling kind of stranded on their own little Island. So I think there has to be some sort of a, a middle ground to recognize what realistically you as an L and D function can do, but also how do you not tarnish that relationship or how do you help them in a way that is feasible? L and D and L and D is always strapped for resources. You know, there are very few people unless you work for like some big giant, multi-billion dollar company that has the necessary resources to handle their requests, but that's based on the size of the organization. How have you found a way or what kind of tips have you found to talk to senior leadership or, you know, just the, maybe the C-level, whoever it is that's pulling the purse strings about getting more resources? What, you know, have you shown specific types of data? Do you have specific conversations? What's your strategy there? If you haven't noticed already, I tend to be somewhat of an unconventional person. So most people may say like, oh, I would do an analysis or a report or show numbers, which to a degree, yes. I have found success with what you could call storytelling. So by understanding what the current situation is in your organization, so let's take, you know, the the continued example of onboarding that we're using. It would fall on deaf ears to just jump in on on my first week and say, onboarding is something you need because you don't have it. And this is what you should do X, Y, Z. And so that is going to be immediately rejected by anyone that has, you know, more self-common sense. But I I think going through onboarding survey data, collecting information from people, being able to see what is in existence, what isn't in existence, and be able to paint a picture and say, onboarding can look like this. Onboarding can be the way that we springboard the knowledge of our new hires coming in, in an interactive way. And... By doing that, we also need, you know, this resource, this resource, this resource, this is why. And, you know, when we launched our orientation program, we simultaneously launched an LMS. So although our orientation didn't cost, um, like, money, so to speak, it definitely it was more so a time investment because new hi- managers had to then expect that, you know, their new hires wouldn't be joining their team until their third day. So if the first two days were going to be spent in orientation, that was the biggest, I think, resource constraint with the implementation of of our orientation program but with the lms that was actually you know a dollar amount that we had to pay up front so being able to piece together 
the rationale of of why this is needed for us specifically. Why are we here? And also showing your homework. I think it's really easy to say, oh, look, this is the latest shiny thing that was on the cover of XYZ magazine. Let's buy it. But I think being able to show like, okay, we explored these options. This is why this one's the best. This is the price. This is why the price is justifiable. When searching for an LMS, we did not choose the least expensive option because for me, it was all about usability and how people would interact with the LMS platform because there's a lot of LMS platforms out there and a lot of LMS platforms that just generally are not well received and actually create a lot of frustration. So we wanted to make sure that the investment was worthwhile in something that we think that our employees would want or our employees would really benefit from. Um, so that's kind of how I approached the adding on additional resources, uh, especially earlier on, um, is more so being able to see that bigger picture and what's missing and what life at our company could look like with that additional investment. I keep hearing customer experience in my head as you're talking with us. And I think it's a great way to look at the impact that you're making to the organization and to sell this story to your organization. So from that perspective, you sold an LMS with a story, it sounds like, in terms of how your learners would feel, how your employees would feel. Are you doing the same thing maybe with your first hire? I just put a bunch of titles in a hat and I draw one and that's who we hire. Um, I love it. No, um, you know, I, I would say, first of all, building L&D from the ground up where there's virtually, you know, no momentum, there's a lot more effort required in that, you know, quote unquote, storytelling. However, once programs launch and gain momentum, that brand of L&D is built. And if your brand is solid, you have this natural, like, innate buy-in from the start. So although you may need to add additional resources later on, you may not need to, quote-unquote, sell it as hard as maybe when there was nothing around. However, it's not like I only asked for additional resources at the start of the L&D function at all. There definitely have been multiple times thereafter. Specifically, when adding new team members, I, I'll be honest, I've proposed new team members a few different times, and each time I actually changed what kind of a person or what kind of a role I would need. It started off as, like, I think a coordinator, and then it moved to a specialist, and then it moved to a uh, learning design manager. And the reason for that evolution was because as I got more acclimated with sustaining the programs and becoming more clear of those next set of priorities, it was more evident what skill gaps were missing within the L&D realm, specifically skill gaps needed to respond to an increase in demand. So for example, when we launched our LMS platform, I was the only one building out content. And then as other people begin to contribute content to our LMS, and as more people began to contribute content, it became this ecosystem of learning that is and became its own job. So that informed 
the need to have someone who could not only manage that ecosystem, but also bring to the table a unique skill set that is maybe not my strength and certainly no one else that I know of has at the organization to help out. And that's instructional design, learning technology, and everything needed to make an effective and positive digital learning experience, recognizing the success that digital learning had after launch of our elements at Olo. So that's kind of the mental process that I have gone through. I will tell others, you know, don't be afraid if it changes over time, but also don't, don't react on a whim. Sleep on what you think is that next role and think of not just what you need right now, but what would have the, the greatest impact long-term. So given that our LMS platform wasn't going anywhere any, anytime soon, and it was on this you know, exponential growth curve, there was always going to be an impact there or, or a growing demand there. Whereas maybe that original coordinator role, for example, would have plateaued at a certain degree or could have been put on hold for longer. On that same token, being in learning and development, we so frequently try and balance we'll call it upskilling. It's a buzzword that I kind of hate, but for this, I can't really think of anything else. How do you kind of balance or justify bringing somebody on that maybe has this great skill, but, and you need that skill, but you need two, and this other person doesn't have it, you know, is it something we can work on? Is it, is it worth kind of upskilling them there? Or you just, for the first hire, second hire, you need just rock stars, people that can come in and do it because the team is so small? It's a great question. I, I, I go back to my earlier recommendation and being realistic and, you know, what could someone realistically learn within a given amount of time to upskill them in a, in a non-intimidating way? I mean, when you think of the world of instructional design, there is so much. I, I, I'm learning this every day. <laughs> there is so much to learn that I have never thought about. And it can be intimidating for those that may not have that high of a level of understanding. So I, I think to your point, it's not apples to apples. I think that what I tend to look at is um, kind of more of a capabilities heat map is let's call that a buzzword for now. But I know that there are certain skill sets or competencies that are required to be an effective L and D member at Olo and each person has a different degree of strength within each of those capabilities. So one could be facilitation, one could be program management, one could be um, instructional design, one can be analytics. If someone may have a stronger degree in one area, you can kind of compensate with having someone else that may have a lower degree in that area, but has a stronger degree in an area that may not be covered by someone on the team. So the goal here is to have people on the learning and development team that can help with a variety of different facets of learning and development without being super specialized. You know, a lot of large companies, each role is very individualized and, and, and narrow scope to a particular piece of a bigger puzzle. But oftentimes there's either no opportunities for them to learn about other parts of L&D, or oftentimes there may not be an interest if that's kind of like their comfort zone. So one thing I look at is, is kind of what additional skill set do they bring to the table? How do we leverage that? And also what opportunities can they contribute to, to build an area that may not be as strong as uh, another person on the team? 
and, and give them collaborative opportunities to work on a project together and learn from each other. So I want to take a step back here because you've been so insightful and, and open in terms of just sharing your, your perspective and really appreciate your candor here as, as we're having this conversation. And as you're talking, I mean, we mentioned a little bit earlier customer experience, uh, which I think you have a really strong talent for. I don't know if you're formally trained in, I mean, you are from a hospitality perspective, right? Like formally trained in this six years. Yes. (laughs) So from a customer experience perspective, you're purchasing assets for your organization in terms of learning management systems. You're thinking about growth in terms of the people that you have on your team and the resources that you'll need in order to be successful in the future. You are thinking about the priorities of the organization and you're aligning your organization to the priorities and needs of the larger organization in order to make an impact on the bottom line and really provide a great experience for your customers at Olo, the the learners, and but the, also on the other end, your stakeholders. We have a perspective that we've developed over time, uh, especially through season one of the Is Training the Answer podcast. And we believe that L&D needs to be run like a business within the organization. And as you're talking, I'm just like checking off boxes. I'm, I'm like assets, people, you know, revenue, right? Like these are things that, that you're doing, whether you are consciously making these decisions and you have a strategy in front of you and you're saying, this is what I'm doing, or you're doing it unconsciously and you're just killing it. What are your thoughts on that point of view? We'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting question and reflecting on it, I tend to go back and forth on whether or not I agree that L and D is kind of like its own, it should be approached as a business I think for the most part, it is very similar in the sense that you build a brand, you want to create value to where your customers, i.e. your internal stakeholders, your internal leaders, see your value, recognize the expertise that you bring to the table, employ your assistance, employ your skill set, and then ultimately see the impact that it has as a result. I think that's very, you know... Uh, congruent with um, the business world. However, where I tend to disagree a little bit is if we were to reframe this whole business model and think about what happens when a business such as, let's say your local restaurant, uh, does not do well, the worst thing that happens is they go out of business. They close. You can't go to that restaurant anymore. Life goes on, you find a new restaurant to go to. Within the context of L&D being a business, if we don't do well, meaning people don't recognize our value, people are not coming to see us uh, for support on a variety of different uh, needs that require our support skill set, et cetera, could be a couple of consequences. First and foremost, similar to your local restaurant, L&D can go out of business and And this is evident by uh, even at TikTok recently, I don't know if you saw the article, but their talent development function was completely disbanded. Um, And one of the reasons that they cited was a misalignment. Although I don't work at TikTok, nor do I know the full insight, it was very interesting as an L&D person to see 
not only that happened, but also that it was publicized. So that's one angle. But I think the most common consequence of poorly operated or poorly run L&D functions or inefficient, I guess you could say, uh, L&D functions is more of a cascade effect of problems within the organization. So if training doesn't effectively target the needs that uh, your organization requires of you, you could be allowing leaders to continue with bad behaviors or continuing to not address skill gaps or subpar expectations that could lead to uh, kind of a domino effect because if leaders continue on without the proper support of growing themselves to grow their team, they could affect others in the long run. They could be causing disengagement with their team. They could be contributing to the great resignation that we all have heard about quite a bit. So there is a bit of pressure for learning and development to not just maintain this brand, to be seen in a positive light, but also to ensure that we don't go, quote unquote, out of business by not effectively addressing what our people need to do better. And I think that is something that tends to keep me up at at night, specifically the fear of our leadership development programming not being effective enough to encourage our leaders to lead teams uh, impactfully. And I'm not by any means saying that our leadership development programming is flawless. I'm also saying it's not non-existent, but I do recognize that there is so much at stake within that particular learning journey that I see that as like my business that I need to keep open. That's interesting. I I remember the TikTok article and they cited some really interesting aspects as to why they made that decision. They thought, you know, teams could do it themselves. We actually used it um, in one of our manager trainings, actually, as an example of vulnerability from a manager perspective, like addressing this issue that hit our industry. And as a manager, like handling that level of vulnerability, when a coworker comes and mentions it, like, could this happen to us? Um, it happened to this company. Like, what is, what are you, Rory, like our manager going to do to kind of ensure that this doesn't happen? Like, and so, you know, it, it was very interesting to hear, to your point that that they were so public about it, especially about a team that so frequently flies under the radar. And a lot of people are like, I, I don't understand what LND does. Yeah, we could do it. Our, we could do our training ourselves. We do it. We did it before Rory showed up, before Kyle showed up. Like we were making 30 minute videos and 50 minute videos and that was our onboarding. So showing that value uh, to keep that business, those lights on is um, constant drive. And you know, when John and I talk about L&D as a business, I think that influences it, you know, keeping the lights on to ensure that that cascading effect doesn't happen. Um, but also all the other aspects, managing budget, bringing teams on, branding. It's it's a really interesting concept and, and really appreciate your kind of insight to that. So as we kind of come to a close here, we, we always typically ask, you know, what are some takeaways that you would like to impart on those listening that either may be starting L&D departments or maybe moving into a more leadership 
esque role where their organization is growing. They were the one L and D person, and now they're tasked with starting a department or maybe taking it on from somebody else. You know, what what kind of insight takeaways would you provide? Yeah, um, lots to think about. I think for one, a big takeaway would be to not bite off more than you can chew. Choose few to focus on first, especially if you're building an L&D team from scratch, you could easily become overwhelmed with a lot of low hanging fruit, a lot of requests or needs, uh, and it will easily wear you out and and potentially burn you out. So um, focus on the most impactful to start. That's my first takeaway. The second is to put yourself in the shoes of your learners. Oftentimes we don't, And that helps us understand what L&D should be, how L&D is seen, and how L&D can make more of an impact when we reframe from that perspective. And I would also say as another takeaway, although you may be a department of one, especially if you're building out an L&D function, and maybe you're the only person with an L&D skill set or expertise, continuously reach out to others to connect, to learn, to listen, and help inform how you continue strategizing the creation of your L&D function. Also, if anything, it helps build relationships and it helps build connections to where people want to support you and people want to see you and your team succeed. Kyle, do you have any cool hospitality resources or something you would say, hey, if you really want to put yourself in the shoes of your learner, this is a great book or this is like a great thought process. Is there anything you've come across in your career? customer success. I love customer success. Yeah. Can you I I will say this. So twice now in my career at two different jobs, I've had the same book recommended and it is a hospitality related book called Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. Danny Meyer is actually... Uh, one of our original investors at Olo. And the book Setting the Table is also a book that we give all of our new hires who join Olo. And to go even further, Danny Meyer also founded a lot of restaurants and hospitality was at um, kind of his core. So he he wrote this book and there's a lot of different hospitality-themed messages in there that really help understand different components of effective I call it guest experience. Um, When I worked at Four Seasons, we absolutely never said customer service or customer experience uh, because guest experience was to a much higher level of care. So that's kind of a great book to start to get more hospitality insights, if you will, or, or guest experience, customer experience, however you want to call it. And although it was written from a restaurant standpoint i know our customer success team uses it to inform some of our interactions as a company with our brands that employ and deploy olo so it's really interesting to see people adapt some key messages that i remember hearing in the in the hotel world uh now seeing that you know what that looks like in um the technology space thank you i definitely will look that up that sounds very cool Well, thanks for taking the time, Kyle. It's been great chatting with you. I'm sure we will continue to chat about all things learning development, LMSs, 
etc. But it, again, thank you so much. It, it was a, a, a wonderful conversation. Really, really appreciate your insight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate having the opportunity to share my experience and thoughts. Thank you.